Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by Bob Kendrick. He's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Bob, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, Brett, man, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're well. I've, I've been I've been looking forward to this. I've been doing all my research and uh, <laughs> reminiscing and remember, you know, remembering grandpa. And, and uh, so we're going to we're going to cover a lot. I'm really excited about this one. Bob, right right away. How, how did you first get involved with the Negro Leagues Museum? It's an amazing story in its own right. I started bread as a volunteer with the museum in 1993. So it's now been 28 years of affiliation with this great institution. And uh, I was working for the Kansas City Star, the daily newspaper here in Kansas City, and was working in the promotions department, which functioned as its in-house advertising agency. And I was senior copywriter, and I drew the assignment of promoting the museum's first ever traveling exhibition an exhibition called Discover Greatness. It is still touring the country today. As a matter of fact, it's at the Yogi Berra Museum right now in Montclair, New Jersey. And we had some success with this promotion. We drew some 10,000 people here to historic 18th and Vine where the then fledgling Negro Leagues Museum was located. Now the permanent home is here as well. And I think that is what prompted the officials here at the museum to realize, hey, Maybe we got something pretty special here. They were pretty pleased with the work that I had done. And they asked me if I would join their board of directors, which I was honored to do so. Served for five years as a volunteer, kind of handled and managed a lot of the PR, marketing, advertising things for the museum. And then in 1998, took a leap of faith, stepped off the board to become the museum's first ever director of marketing served in that capacity for 12 years, left briefly in 2010, and then 2011 was being introduced as the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So who knew that you go from being a volunteer to now trying to lead this great organization? Yeah, it's very cool. And and uh, obviously your passion. Uh, as a kid growing up, how much did you know bef- before this all started? How much did you keep up with, with the history of the Negro yeah, Leagues? Not a doggone thing. I really didn't, Brett. And it was amazing to me because I did consider myself, when I stumbled into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, I did consider myself to be a baseball fan. And, man, I had no idea. I mean, I knew the names Satchel Page, Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson. I do think most baseball fans have at least heard those names. Now, they may not know just how great those players really were, but you likely have heard those names because they're transcending types of names. But, Brett, man, I had no idea about the breadth, the depth, the scope, the magnitude that this history represented both on and off the field. And Henry Aaron is my all-time favorite baseball player. 
I had no idea that his career had started in the Negro Leagues. And so now this is this awakening for me. And I fell in love. I fell in love with the story. I fell in love with the amazing athletes who made this story. And honestly, man, I became almost engrossed in it. I wanted to learn as much as I could. And Brett, I didn't want to keep it to myself. I wanted everybody else to feel the same way I felt about it. And then I started to meet the players, you know, and particularly one player, my man, Buck O'Neill. And I tell people all the time, once you're bitten by the Buck bug, oh, it's a wrap. You just want to be on Buck's team. The energy, the passion, the charisma that he had for wanting to ensure that they wouldn't be forgotten, that the their contributions to our sport and to our country would be remembered. And when I met him, I just wanted to be on his team. And, and that's what happened to me. I, I, I didn't know a whole lot about the Negro Leagues. And you know what? I've been involved with it now for 28 years, and I'm still learning. I'm still learning. That's how broad this story really is. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $1 on either team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code BOONE this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Bob Kendrick. I, I think, you know, a couple of things you mentioned are are really interesting because we, uh, of course, everybody, not even, a, you don't have to be a baseball fan to know about the Jackie Robinson story mm-hmm. and, and, and the great player he was. But you talk to the guys, the old timers, and they said, by the way, Brett, Jackie Robinson wasn't even the best player. There were a lot of guys that could oh. outplay Jackie. Oh, yeah. And and you mentioned, you know, the Hank Aarons of the world that started there. Well, we all know because he was mainstream for so long. Mm-hmm. You know, we all we all know how great of a player Hank Hank uh, became and, and, and the career he had. You know, in my in on my chart, Hank's the top five baseball player all time. Okay. You know, oh, he, he, he's known as, you know, Homer. For the home runs and and Hank Aaron's a home run guy. No, he's so much more than a home run hitter. You know, he kind of get pigeonholed as the home run king. It's like, wait a minute. Check his, especially when he was young, he's stealing (laughs) bases. He's stealing bases. He's hitting 300. I don't know how many ribbies he's got. It it, it boggles my mind. 22. Yeah, yeah, 2,200 RBIs. So we all know about. I reckon we'll ever be broken. I know his total base record will never be broken. I don't think anybody will play long enough to break it. 
He was unbelievable. And and we we know those guys, but the but the guys you mentioned, the Josh Josh Gibsons of the world that you just hear the stories about how good they really yeah. were. Yeah. Uh you know, when you start getting into and, and doing a little research on, on the past in the Negro Leagues, really, really interesting stuff. You grew up in Crawfordville, Georgia, uh, and you were a baseball player yourself. You played at Park College. Uh, take me through a little bit of your childhood and uh, your baseball prowess. I want to hear a scouting report on Bob Kendrick. Well, no, well, he couldn't hit the curveball. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you struggle with the secondary pitches. Well, you know, I, was, I would never forget this, Brett. Uh, Buck and I, I forget where we were, but anyway, the reporter came up to him and said, Mr. O'Neill, how do you hit a great curveball? Buck said, by not missing the fastball. That's right. (laughs) And and no, for me, I only played Sandlot baseball. I actually got to Park College playing basketball. Yeah, I chased a basketball from Crawfordville, Georgia to Parkville, Missouri, and now I make my living in baseball. But like most, I grew up, you know, when you're playing, we're playing on the sandlot and you're playing whatever sport was in season. My high school was actually too small, Brett, to have a high school baseball team. Crawfordville, Georgia, only is a town of about 500 people. And so we had two sports, basketball and track. And I think anyone who knows me know that I do not believe in running if there's not a ball involved. So track was eliminated right away. <laughs> and so I was playing some uh, basket, high school basketball, ended up getting a college basketball scholarship from Park College, NAIA level basketball. But, you know, I've been a baseball fan, like I said, as long as I can remember. I taught myself how to read a box score out of the old Atlanta Journal-Constitution and just fell in love with this game. My brothers, they back then, they, they every Sunday, they played what they call hardball. They didn't really call it baseball. They played hardball. And the community was shut down to go watch these guys play. And, you know, you want to emulate what your big brothers do. And I was no different. So but I never really got a chance to play organized baseball. Uh, I wonder sometimes what that would have been like. But, you know, most people, like I said, that curveball, that curveball ended a lot of careers. Yeah, it did. And it still ended them. Uh, i'll tell you what i watched some of these guys today i see average guys guys last year hitting 198 come on where did where did that come from what are we getting into come on it's a different game now the approach is different make an adjustment (laughs) that's what i you know i'm old school like that so i feel you i i feel you know the situational hitting and these kinds of things you know and, and, and it takes me back to the way they played the game in the negro leagues as Buck O'Neill would say, Rube Foster, who formed the Negro Leagues here in Kansas City in 1920, he said Rube Foster, Brett, might have seven guys on his team who could steal your 30, 40 bases. Uh, you know, they played what they now call, they call it small ball. The analytics, say don't really appreciate that style of play. But, man, it was, for me, it's still winning baseball. When, you know, you move a runner over, you can manufacture a run. Rube Foster's team could score a run. The ball never left the infield. And it was a far more exciting brand of baseball. Yeah, Rube Foster, and we're going to talk a little bit later, his his influence on the game. And I think you were quoted as saying, might be 
if not the one of the most influential people yeah. in the history of baseball, not just the Negro Leagues, but exactly. baseball in general. And, and exactly. we'll get to that a little bit later. But you mentioned Buck O'Neill. And how can how could we not talk about uh, the late, great Buck O'Neill? He's finally getting his recognitions for for let's be honest, his contributions to the game are, are kind of endless. Um, if Buck was alive today, you knew him so well. Uh-huh. Uh, recently, he got inducted. Yeah. What would his reaction be? Well, he'd have been excited. He'd have been excited. You know, he thought he was going to get in in 2006. And we all thought he was going to get in in 2006. And, and he missed by one vote. And it was devastating to all of us. And I'm sure it hurt him. I know, not, not, I'm not sure. I know it hurt him. But he handled it with such grace, class, and dignity to the point that people thought he wasn't disappointed. But no, he was. So he would be very excited about him going in the Hall of Fame as he would have been in 2006. But for Buck, it was never self-serving. It was always Brent about his museum. He knew what him going into the Hall of Fame would do potentially for his museum in terms of our ability to take that incredible opportunity and turn it into financial support so that we can continue the process of securing the long-term sustainability of this museum. Now, he, we all believe that he deserved to be amongst the immortals of this game who are recognized at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I think he'd also be overwhelmed by this outpouring of love that continues to come his way, just as it did in 2006, man, when I had to go deliver the news that he didn't get in. You know, this... In 2006, Brett, I did not even think it was remotely possible that Buck wasn't going to get in. So I was not prepared to handle that announcement that it was a shoe in that Buck was going to get in. And then when it doesn't happen, I'm devastated. We had some 300 people who had gathered their friends, family, media. They were devastated. And I had to go into this little conference room where Buck was held up with my good friend, the great writer, Joe Posnansky. And they were in the conference room. I had to go in, excuse some folks and sit down and tell my friend that he didn't get a, He didn't get enough votes to get in. And I know in his heart, he thought he was in, you know, and, and that was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. And, and, and I'll never forget this as long as my mother will say that I'm in my natural mind and I sit down next to him and I'm trying to gather my thoughts. Don't know how I'm going to tell him. And I look up at Buck and I say, well, Buck, we didn't get enough votes. And Brett, he looks up at me and he smiles. He says, well, that's how the cookie crumbles. And in the next voice, he asked me how many had gotten in. If you recall, 17 Negro Leaguers got in in 2006. All of them did. Buck O'Neill and Minnie Minoso, who also got in the Hall of Fame this time. Buck O'Neill and Minnie Minoso were the only two living names on that list, that, that ballot of Negro Leaguers who had made that final list to be considered. And he asked me who they were, and I didn't have that information at that point in time. And the next words that came out of his mouth, I wonder if the Hall of Fame will invite me to speak. Now, Joe Posnansky, the great writer, he had turned beet red. He is furious. And he looks up at Buck. He says, Buck, you wouldn't do that, would you? Buck says, Joe, of course I would. What has my life been about? 
I said, well, Buck, I need to go downstairs because, as I mentioned, we had over 300 people who had gathered for what we all thought was going to be a Hall of Fame celebration announcement. I said, Buck, I need to go downstairs. I need to go deliver the news. I'll come back and get you. I think you should address the group. It's been a long day. Well, as I've oftentimes told this story, from our upstairs conference room to what we call the Field of Legends, where we have these life-size bronze sculptures of Negro League greats and they're cast and positioned as if they're playing a game. It's one of the most amazing displays in any museum anywhere in the world. And they all represent players who are in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so from our upstairs conference room to the Field of Legends was the longest walk of my life. Brett, I am literally coaching myself. Bob, you can't cry. You can't cry. This is your job. You got to suck it up. The more I'm telling myself not to cry, tears are steady building in my eyes. We had the podium at second base. And this is the honest to God's truth. I have yet to go back to watch the video. I have no idea what I said that day, but whatever it was, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. People were openly emotional. And Brett, this wasn't disappointment. This was anger. This was outrage at what many thought was such a travesty to leave Buck O'Neill out in the Hall of Fame. Well, Buck O'Neill walks in through our gift shop and the room erupts into this thunderous ovation. And Buck walks up to the podium, man, as I, as I oftentimes say, for lack of a better term, delivered one of the most amazing concession speeches that I'd ever heard. What he did that day was he literally implored all of us not to be angry, not to be bitter, not to express any ill will toward anyone who may have had something to do with this decision. He said, I had an opportunity. And in this great country of ours, that's all you could ever ask. They didn't think old Buck was good enough. We got to live with that. But if I'm a Hall of Fame in your eyes, that's all that matters to me. Just keep on loving old Buck. Now, I'm a complete wreck now. Tears are free flowing. But what I remind people of what Buck did that day was Brett, he literally reached out his arms, wrapped them around all of us and said, it's okay. Instead of us consoling him, he was consoling us in what I still say to be one of the most amazing displays of strength of character that I'd ever witnessed. As you know, he would push aside his disappointment, go to Cooperstown, deliver this impassioned speech on behalf of 17 dead folks who did not have a voice. He was their voice. The world was saying it should be your induction speech. And there he was speaking on behalf of those who didn't have a voice. And what I also say was one of the most selfless acts in American sports history. And a little over two months later, old Buck passed away himself at age 94, a month shy of his 95th birthday. And so when we get to Selection Sunday this year, I am as nervous as nervous can be because now I know how these committees work. You prepare yourself now for what could possibly happen and that the verdict might not go our way. But once Josh Rawish, the Hall of Fame president, started to read the bio, you instantly knew it was Buck. And Brett, I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off my shoulders and I exhaled and then I became, I just really was overcome with emotions because I'm going back and forth to what it was like 15 years ago. You wish your friend could be here for that moment, but you're also so excited that he now takes his proper place in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So I know the first thing that he want to do would be to thank everyone 
who has continu who continually advocated the fact that he belonged there. People never gave up on this. 15 years later, people were just as vigilant today as they was 15 years ago when it didn't happen. And I do think for his fans, they feel somewhat vindicated because they feel like their voices had long last been heard. Yeah, it was a, it was a packed house. I've seen the video, and and you're right. Pe people were upset. You thought you were going to be crying for a different reason that day, Bob, and and you were you were pissed off. Like, how does this not happen? And Brad, I shouldn't have been. Yeah, and I tell you why I shouldn't have been. I should have had Buck spirit because we got 17 Negro leaguers in that day. I I'm supposed to be a steward of this story, you know. So 17 Negro leaguers getting into the Hall of Fame is indeed monumental. I should have been carrying the same spirit that Buck had, but y'all, I'd be lying to you if I said I was, because I wasn't, because my guy <laughs> didn't get in. <laughs> you, know, you know what, though, and, and it's so... It's so cool. I, you know, during my career, I got to know Buck. And I mean, you couldn't go to Kansas City without you running could. into you, you without could. running into Buck O'Neill. And I say this uh, not about too many people. And I've, you know, I've met a lot of people in this game. Buck was 94 years old, you said. Yeah. He, if it's possible, he was wise beyond his years. Oh, yeah. Always was like that. Oh, yeah. He was always that guy in the room that was against adversity, against the worst bit of news that could possibly hit you. He was one of those guys that was so poised and, and, and always looked on the positive side of, of any negative. Absolutely. That's just the type of man he was that yeah. big smile. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and he's a human being. And sometimes you wonder if he really is. Cause it's like, I, I'd walk away from a conversation with Buck and goes, does this guy ever have a bad day? Cause I'm over my last 12 and I suck. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, this guy acts like he wakes up and wins the lottery every morning. <laughs> or is that just the way he is? That, but Buck that was the way he really was. And I yeah. asked him, Brett, I said, Brett, I said, Buck, where does this innateness come from? This ability to, number one, see the good in everyone. Sometimes, Brett, even when they weren't good, Buck would still find the good in them. And I asked him, I said, where does that come from? And man, you know what he told me? He says, my daddy told me when I was a little boy to treat every man the way you want to be treated. The golden rule. Now, we all know the golden rule. We just don't all live the golden rule. And Buck O'Neill took something that his father said to him when he was a boy, and it carried him throughout his life. And, uh, and I saw this every place that we went. If people didn't know him, they knew he was somebody special. And it wouldn't take him long because the man never met a stranger in his life. So if he didn't know you, he would go over and introduce himself to you. And by the time we would be leaving to go maybe catch our flight, leave to go to our gate to catch our flight. They are sharing an embrace as if they had known each other all their lives. And of course, as you mentioned, he hung out at the K all the time. So he's hanging around the batting cage, talking to everybody, you know, not just the players from the Royals, uh, and, but everybody. Uh, Derek Jeter says he's a rookie with the Yankees and he comes to Kansas City for the first time. And who's the first person to greet him? Buck O'Neill telling him how great he can be and how we want him to be great. And he never forgot that. My friend Willie Wilson says, for the most part, he never heard 
the fans in the stands, except for one voice, Buck O'Neill. Crowded Kauffman Stadium, and Willie said he fouled one straight back, and he could hear this this this, this luminous voice. Oh, you got him now, you know. Yeah, that, <laughs> and that, 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 gave him that encourage that extra encouragement that he needed. That was Buck. Yeah, and I and uh, you know I talked to my father. Uh, I told him we were having having you on the on the show, and and uh, we were talking about Buck a little bit. He goes, "Oh yeah, he is." He said, "Oh yeah, Brett." He goes, "When I was managing the Royals, yeah. old Buck, old Buck, be standing around the cage every single day." And he, you know, he and and let's be honest. I mean, we don't have to. He was just one of those guys. He, I've never met a man in this game uh, that that's ever had an unkind word to say about Buck well, O'Neill. Well, Buck O'Neill, and you know, my dad said that big smile and and all my dad can keep reiterating is that was a kind man, Brett, that was a kind man. And I think that's kind of universal. That's what Buck O'Neill is. We talked about how he handled that speech when all, all signs pointed to him getting in and he didn't. Everyone in that room was as upset as could possibly be. And Buck's the one that kind of rose above the fray and gave a speech and said, you know, kind of basically said, maybe next time, guys, <laughs> there's no reason to fray. If I'm if I'm keeping it together, you can keep it together. And that's just a, that's just the type of guy he was. He played from the Monarchs. What was it? 1938 to 55. Sure. And he ended up being. Uh, the first African-American uh Player, ex-player, to coach in the big leagues, Chicago yeah. Cubs. Am I, if if I'm accurate, correct me anytime wrong, that I'm I'm yeah. wrong here. 1962. 1962. 1962. Yeah. Uh, I know Cool Papa Bell originally uh, signed Ernie Banks. Is that correct? But I well, think Bucks did. Buck sign Lou Brock. He did. So yeah. Cool Papa Bell, Brad, sees Ernie Banks playing in Dallas, Texas. Cool Papa Bell was managing what we what they call the Junior Monarchs. Monarchs had a second team, and they're playing down in Dallas when Cool Papa Bell sees Ernie Banks. And Cool Papa Bell calls Buck and says, Buck, I got one for you. And Buck O'Neill says, can he pick it? And Cool said, yeah, he can pick it. And Buck O'Neill signs Ernie Banks, sight unseen, based on Cool Papa Bell's recommendation. Another former Negro Leaguer named Bill Skinny Legs Blair, old junk ball pitcher, as Buck would call him, was living in Dallas, published the African-American weekly paper called the Elite News. Well, he knew Ernie, very close to Ernie's family. Bill Blair buys Ernie Banks two suits. They put him on the bus and they send him to Kansas City to come join the Kansas City Monarchs. Buck would then make the arrangement for Ernie to leave the Monarchs to go to the Cubs. And, and so Buck, when he leaves the Monarchs in 55, he goes up to the Cubs as a scout. So he gets credit for Ernie Banks. As you mentioned, the great Lou Brock. How about this name? Lee Arthur Smith. Really? I played yeah. with Lee. I yeah. played with Lee. Yeah, so Buck got three Hall of Famers now. And Joe Carter. Joe Carter, my good friend Joe Carter, uh, Buck signed Joe out of Wichita State. He had Oscar Gamble, George Altman, Sweet Lou Johnson. He didn't sign Billy Williams, but he is the guy 
that brought Billy Williams back to the game. Billy had quit the Cubs. He had left. I think Billy got really sullen by some of the racial stuff that was happening. Cubs at that time, spring training, I believe, in San Antonio, Texas. And Billy just ups and quits. He goes back home, Brett, to Whistler, Alabama. And what did the Cubs do? They sent Buck to go get him. And Buck went down. Buck says, I never said anything to Billy about going back. But he'd pick him up almost every day. They'd go around to the, you know, the playgrounds, the ballparks. And everybody's excited to see Billy Williams. He's a ball player, major leaguer. And Buck says, I was about three, four days of that. Billy looks at me and says, okay, Buck, I'm ready to go back. And the Cubs wanted, they wanted Buck to put him on the bus. And Buck said, uh-uh, I'm going to put him in my car. Buck had an old Plymouth Fury, and, and he put Billy in the car and drove him from Whistler, Alabama, back to San Antonio, Texas. Billy Williams would become sweet, swinging Billy Williams, future Hall of Famer. And, and Mr. Williams will tell you today, he owes his Hall of Fame career to Buck O'Neill. That's very cool. Yeah, you send Buck, you know he's coming back with him. You knew that. <laughs> you know, and I, and I saw a video and, and that's why I, you know, I drew the drew the line to, to Ernie Banks because I saw a video with I, I don't know if Buck was in the video, but I remember a young Ernie Banks talking in the Wrigley Field was the backdrop. And he was talking about as a young player, how he was socially yeah. and and he was very introverted. And yeah. he said he had problems being around people and dealing with everything that was going on at that time in history. And he said, Buck O'Neill is the one man that put him at ease early in his career. So yeah. I think that common theme is Buck just has this, this touch that oh, not too many people have that, that touched so many lives and, and so many people reference Buck O'Neill and, and being a, an intricate part of their life, especially, you know, obviously in the game of baseball, but uh, it, it's a pretty cool story when you really get into it and, and get into the history. And some of these stories you're telling us right now, these are cool. These are cool things that, that not everybody knows about. And we're, we're all getting a good education here. It's pretty cool. Yeah, no, man, that's why we enjoy the work that we do. And that's why I enjoyed, you know, all that time that I got to spend with Buck. You know, he and I were traveling all over the country. And uh, yeah, I joke about this, uh, but uh, it's really the truth. I still can't believe they paid me to hang out with Buck O'Neill. Brett, I would have done it for absolutely nothing. Now, they didn't pay me a lot, but they paid me nevertheless to hang out with Buck O'Neill and the car rides and the times on the golf course. He was an avid golfer. He loved to play golf. And the plane rides, the, the breakfast, the lunch, the dinners, and all the wisdom that he had to impart. He didn't force it on you, but it was there if you wanted it. And I tell people all the time, the smartest thing that I ever did was I kept my mouth closed and I listened. Uh, and now I get to share so many of the stories that I heard firsthand through him. I get to share them virtually every day here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And when I do, I really feel like I'm keeping him alive in my mind and in my heart. And I hope these stories never die. I really don't. I hope they never die. I hope whoever subsequently follows me that these stories will continue to live uh, because, again, they're such a pertinent part of our game and it helps people understand just how special the Negro Leagues really were. 
1988, Buck goes to work for the Royals. And in 94, uh, he kind of steals the show when that Ken Burns collection <laughs> came out. He, he's <laughs> Buck showing up on Letterman. He's everywhere. everywhere. And, the, and the cool thing here is, it, and he becomes a part of a pretty elite group, but he gets the Medal of Freedom from George W., uh, I think he's joining Clemente Mays and Jackie Robinson. I think got the same award. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, no. I mean, you know, to to get that honor, and and I was there at the White House uh, when Buck brother received the award uh, posthumously for him, and it was very special. And, and the medal is here on display at the museum now. Oh yeah, I had that right there. I said I think the medals the medals on display now. Yeah, my uh, family was very generous to allow it to come home, and uh, you know, it, again, it speaks volume to the man that Buck O'Neill was, and you know, that's that's great company that you just mentioned. You know, in terms of uh, baseball players who received that honor, Ernie Banks also received that honor. Um, I mean, that's pretty special. Willie Mays from President Obama received the honor. These are all Negro League players. You know, again, it kind of sends a, a resounding message to the kind of athlete that called the Negro Leagues home. They more or less have always been these misnomers about these players, that they were vagabonds, tramps, hobos, illiterate. And we are oftentimes working to break down those stereotypes and those really unfair depictions of these players. These were very bright men. They really were. Buck was college educated. Buck went to Edward Waters College in Jacksonville, Florida. And, and of course, you got an education in life if you were playing in the Negro Leagues. And, and, and you know, Ernie Banks, Brett, did not want to leave the Kansas City Monarchs. They had to push him out. He didn't want to go because he was afraid that he was going to be isolated, which he was which he absolutely was. You see, he was so comfortable here in Kansas City. So when they play the game after the game, everybody going to go home and get cleaned up. Then they going to eat dinner. They're going to the nightclub. And of course, you know, jazz reigns supreme here in Kansas City. Uh, it, you know, where we are, where the museum is at 18th and Vine was literally a cultural crossroads where jazz and baseball intersected. But he understood that when he left to go to Chicago to go join the Cubs, he is going to be isolated and he didn't want to go. He really didn't. And, and they literally had to push him out. They said, Ernie, you got to go. You have to go so that another player will get the same opportunity. And of course, you know, fortunately for Ernie, Gene Baker was also there. And Ernie Banks and Gene Baker formed the major's first all black double play tandem. And Gene Baker had played here for Buck with Kansas City Monarchs as well. And, and so that made the transition a little easier, but Ernie and Gene really were both relegated to the south side of Chicago. They had nowhere else to go. So he's right about the isolation aspect. Every one of those players who subsequently integrated their respective major league teams had to all deal with that level of isolation not really having anyone you could talk to. You mentioned like going over 12. Well, who are they going to talk to? You know, you know, cause nobody really wanted to talk to them. And, and so you kind of had to fend for yourself and figure it out. Now, when Buck gets there to the Cubs and joins them, now they had this ear 
that they could fall on. And it didn't just have to be about baseball. It could be about life and other things that were going on in their world. And so, again, you see this buffer in Buck O'Neill and just how meaningful he was not only to these players on the field, but off the field. Big time part of history. I mean, you you mentioned it right there. He doesn't. Ernie Banks, one of one of the greats, doesn't want to go. Maybe without Buck O'Neill, he never. We never hear Ernie Banks, and he never leaves. He never gets out of his comfort zone. Can you imagine that? Can you? I, I, that's what I oftentimes remind our visitors. If Jackie doesn't break the color barrier in 1947, think about the incredible talent we would have missed. So we'd have missed Henry Aaron. We would have missed Willie Mays, Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella, Roberto Clemente, Bob Gibson. Can you imagine our sport without those great stars? And if you can, you can imagine what it was like before 1947. Because Brett, they didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. They were playing great baseball well yeah. before 1947. Imagine, imagine, right? Imagine if if it, every <laughs> if everybody was playing together the whole time. The amount of names we'd have. Oh. You know, oh. we have the names now, but there'd be a, just a a huge addition to those great ball players lists. Oh, no doubt. Because what I I tell people all the time is the fact that we as baseball fans. We were cheated. We were cheated, man. We should have seen all the great stars, black, white, brown, red, blue, green, whatever color, take the field together and just how much better our game would have been. It was already a great game, but it would have been even better, you know, had this happened sooner. But I also tell people, had it happened sooner, the record books would be entirely different. They would. You know, one, one of my favorite facts as it relates to this story and the impact, the immediate impact that the Negro Leagues had on Major League Baseball from 1949 through 1959, nine of 11 National League most valuable players were former Negro League stars. We haven't even talked about rookies of the year. These are all MVP. And, and the American League was just so slow to sign black players. The American League really did not want to sign black players. They had to kind of really kind of come along because they didn't really want to. They were kind of pushed into it, which is why Boston was the last team to sign a black player in 1959, 12 years after Jackie. But the National League was far more aggressive and you had all of these great stars. So you don't get your first MVP in the American League. He's a former Yankee, the great Elston Howard. Uh Uh-huh. And 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 Brett Elston Howard and Ernie Banks were roommates when they were playing for the Kansas City Monarchs. Wow. <laughs> see, see I'm, this is awesome for me because, you know, I, I, I think I, I grew up in this in this great family that 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 I've grown up in. And I think I know everything about baseball. See, and, and now today I'm getting a completely new history lessons from, from Bob Kendrick. And, and it's awesome. It's just another uh, facet and another, you know, it's, it's just cool hearing these stories. And I often wonder, I, you hear so many, and, and this is one unanimous is the Josh Gibson analogy. Oh. And they just say how good he really was. And, and, uh, you know, he's a Johnny bench type talent and, uh, we never got to see him and, and in, in the big leagues. Uh, uh I, I don't know. 
I wish I could have seen him swing the bat. To yeah. hear people that I have the utmost respect for, Buck O'Neill, Monty Irvin, and other stars of the Negro Leagues who I did get to meet, they said there's no comparison to Gibson because what he did was he combined power and average while playing the catching position, and he was not a good catcher. He was a great catcher. But we're talking about a guy, as Buck O'Neill would describe him, Brett, and he would describe him in this way, that he had the eyes of Ted Williams and the power of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package. Yeah, his outs, as we say in the game, were loud outs. The third baseman and the shortstop were damn near in left field when Gibson came up, man. They basically, that was their version of a shift, the early version of a shift. So, basically, <laughs> <laughs> so Josh, if you want to bun it, man, you can have it. You were not going to creep in on this guy. Uh, the power was almost mythical-like, but it was real. It was real. And we hear the stories of how he hit one out of Yankee Stadium, completely out of old Yankee Stadium. And that's impressive. You know, Mantle hit one that hit the light stanchion, or it would have gone out. And Gibson hit one completely out. But Brett, as impressive as that was, I think even more impressive was the fact that he hit one in the right field upper deck of Yankee Stadium one-handed. He was fooled on a changeup and reached out with one hand and hit it in the upper deck in Yankee Stadium, old Yankee Stadium. And, and Gibson was a jolly giant of a man. And they say as he was circling the bases, he just giggling. He's good. He was the kind of guy that was so strong that he could poke you in the arm and it hurt, but he didn't mean to hurt you. You know, he, he just had this incredible power. He swung a 40-ounce, 41-inch bat. And when you look at the pictures of Josh, Brett, he ain't choking up. He got a grip down below the knob. Big, powerful forearms, big, powerful thighs, and great eyes. I, I tell people, if you want kind of an indication of Josh physically, think Bo Jackson as a catcher, and you got Josh Gibson. Yeah, Bo, that's 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 a pretty high. Uh, well, that's a pretty high bar. I played against Bo, and I'm going. I, I, I don't like. He, Bo, I'll tell you what, Bob. Bo used to scare me breaking up a double play because I thought this guy, this guy's going to run me over. You're not allowed to run. You're not allowed to run over the second baseman, Bo. Tone it down there, big guy, because he played with my dad, so I knew Bo was a kid. And then all of a sudden, I'm playing against him. And and he'd mess with me a little bit, like, I'm coming to get you, Booney. I'd be like, Bo, save it, Bo. You can't take me out. But, but he'd come at me, and, and my dad said that, too. He said, Brett, I've been in a lot of collisions at home plate. He said, I've had a lot of big men run by me, you know, back in the in the 70s that we are family uh, Pittsburgh Pirates team with, he said, Parker and, and Starger. Oh, yeah. they're, they're big men. He said, but let me tell you this. I've never heard that sound that I heard when Bo Jackson ran by me at home plate. Oh. He, said, I'm, I, he, he said it was just different. Well, you know, we talk about the throw that he made against Seattle. Yeah. Harold Reynolds, Harold Reynolds out. Dad yeah. makes the catch. Bo yeah, makes the throw. But if you ever go back and watch that video, Brett, 
your dad is leaving. He thinks this thing is over with. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this missile is coming his way, and they get Harold. They get Harold at home plate, and they got him pretty easily, actually. Uh, I mean, it's one of the most amazing things that I think any of us in the sport has ever seen. And so Harold is a good friend of mine, and, and we're in D.C. We're in D.C. for the All-Star Game a few years ago, and it's late night. We're all hungry, and I guess we all had the same thing. We all end up at a McDonald's of all places. It's like 1 in the morning. And we started talking about that play, and Harold says, as spectacular as that play was, he said he thought the most spectacular thing that he ever saw Bo Jackson do. They're in the kingdom, and everybody's taking batting practice, and Bo gets in the box, and he turns around left-handed and hit several balls in the upper deck of the kingdom, where Harold says he'd never seen maybe one or two balls go the entire time that he had played there in Seattle, and Bo turns around left-handed, and, and his two or three up there, and then handing the bat back and walked on off. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's how Bo was too. And, and you talk about a freak, and I mean that in in a in, in a good way. In a, in a good way. But that's a freak right there. That oh, is a freak. I've, I've I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen well, anything know, like Buck it on a baseball said, field. Buck O'Neill always said that he only heard the sound of the crack of the bat. That was so unique and distinct from any that he'd ever heard three times. The first time was Babe Ruth. The second time it was Josh Gibson. And the third time it was Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson. Yeah, that, that the ball just made a different sound coming off their bat, man. Yeah, they're like, it's like a superhero. <laughs> Tell me about the, uh, the legacy seat in Kansas City. Oh, you know, every now and then, Brett, an idea comes along and you wish it was your idea. And probably 20 years from now, I lie and swear it was my idea, but it wasn't my idea. It actually was the idea of the of Dan Glass, the son of the late David Glass, who owned the Kansas City Royals. Well, Buck always had his designated seat that he sat in to watch games out at the Cape. At first, he was scouting. Then later, it was more PR than it was scouting. He's out there signing autographs, taking pictures with fans and so forth. So when Buck passed away in 2006, the big question was what would happen with his seat? And a lot of folks thought, well, the seat needs to be donated to the Negro Leagues Museum. And others said it needed to be immortalized and not allow anyone to sit in the seat. Dan Glass came up with what is now the Buck O'Neill Legacy Seat Program. And it was just an absolute perfect way to perpetuate the legacy of Buck O'Neill by honoring, as I like to describe them, ordinary people who do extraordinary things to help other people in this community. They embody that selflessness that made Buck O'Neill so special. And what's so beautiful about this is that people don't nominate themselves. There are others in the community who are watching these great deeds uh, that these folks are doing to help our community to help others to enhance the quality of life for those who call Kansas City home, and they nominate them for consideration. And the beautiful thing about it, this debuted in 2007, and no one has missed an opportunity to sit in Buck's seat. It means something to people. Now, during the COVID uh, shortened season, they put cutouts of people in the seat because they couldn't get into the ballpark. 
but they did that for every single home game, and the Royals are still doing it for every home game, every season, even those two years in 14 and 15 when we went into the playoffs and World Series, they were still having people sit in Buck O'Neill's seat. It was just a beautiful gesture to celebrate and continue to remember a beautiful human being in Buck O'Neill. Buck was always also, he was always quick to correct people. Uh, it wasn't, it was a museum, it was not, a museum. A hall, not a hall of exactly. fame. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And he really wanted that distinction. He and said it told, the, told the story of the Negro Leagues. That's what he yeah. said it did. And, and he felt very passionately, Brett, that if you were good enough, you should be recognized at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown so that there was no need for a separate Hall of Fame for Negro League players, that there had been enough separation in our sport. So any deserving athlete who plays this game or makes a contribution to this game should be recognized at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But he also understood that it was far more important for us to preserve, celebrate, educate, illuminate this history than it would be for us to create a a pseudo-museum when you know that you have a finite number of people that you can put in your museum. And, And so that is what ultimately led us down the path of creating a Negro Leagues baseball museum, 1990, in a little tiny one-room office right across the street from where the museum operates now. And guys like Buck O'Neill and other local Negro Leaguers who were still with us at that time, man, it's so sad to say that they're all gone now. Every one of those players who were here in Kansas City during that time when we formed this museum, they're all, they've all passed on. But they literally took turns paying the monthly rent to keep that little office open. And with it, our hopes and dreams of one day building a facility that would pay rightful tribute to not only one of the greatest chapters in baseball history, but what now thousands of people each year discover one of the greatest chapters in American history. What's it like when could be current ex players. Mm-hmm. They come in. They come into the museum. I heard. I heard that a teammate of mine, Ichiro, was yeah. what loves that museum. He's been in several times. But what? What are the players? The current, like I said, the current or ex players uh, when they come into the museum. What? What's? What are? What are the questions they have? Well, I tell you what, man. It is my favorite aspect of what we do. You know, I was there with Buck for the ride when so many athletes would come and. They got the tour from Buck O'Neill and, you know, what a, you know, that's a, an experience in its own right, because I can relate to history, but I didn't live the history. When you walk through there with Buck, you're walking through with someone who actually lived the history. And it was always special to Buck to bring athletes through the museum. And it's still special for me to carry on, you know, the tradition that he started with doing that. And Brett, it never gets old. And the thing that I share with my current athletes and even former athletes who are experiencing the museum for the first time, the thing that you all shared in common with the players in the Negro Leagues, just simply love of the game. You play this game because you love it. Now, sometimes fans can get sullen because they equate everything to money. And yes, the athlete can make a great living playing this game, but they never stop loving this game. 
you know, you're still playing a game that you played for free when you were a kid. And if you had to play it for free, you'd play it again for free. But as I also share with my athletes, you will never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Brett, they had to love it in order to endure the things that they had to endure. So you can imagine the, the look of awe on these players' faces when they come in and learn that well, it wasn't uncommon that these players could ride into a town, fill up the ballpark, but yet not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them or not have a place to stay. So they'd sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a place that would offer them basic services, but they never allowed that set of social circumstances to kill their love of the game. Their spirit was, okay, if I've got to sleep on the bus and if I've got to eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. You cannot rob me of this joy of playing baseball. And you know what? I'm pretty doggone good at it. And I want others to know how good I am at it. And so our story is not a woe is mine kind of story. It is not a sad, somber story like a lot of people think that it's going to be. Because again, we understand that it is against the backdrop of American segregation a horrible chapter in this country's history. But Brett, our story here is about what emerged out of segregation. This wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And man, is all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you in the major leagues? Okay, then I'll create my own league. And, and I think every athlete who makes their living in this game, they can appreciate that. Because number one, you know already how tough this game is to play under the best of circumstances, no less with the social pressures that they had to deal with. And so I think for them, they have, number one, they have a newfound respect for what these athletes were able to accomplish. But then it also provides them perspective because I'm one that believes this. And I think as human beings, man, we are wired to complain. We will complain even when we don't have anything to complain about. And so some of the coaches will say, well, my guy was upset because we had to take a late night charter flight. And I'm saying to myself, a late night charter flight. And then you walk in the museum and there's this beautiful quote from the legendary Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like the names. The names the are quote, they're great. <laughs> and the quote says, Brad, it says, every 4th of July. We play four games in one day. I'd pitch two and catch two and sleep 35 minutes in between games. All of a sudden, that late night charter flight don't seem so bad anymore. And so it does provide perspective. Maybe it makes you appreciate what you have a little bit more that perhaps you won't take that for granted. And I do think that is part of the experience that they gain when they come here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I love it though. It never gets old for me. Sharing the stories, seeing their reactions. It, it is one of the favorite aspects of what I get to do. That, and you're right. It does put it in perspective because, you know, I grew up, I grew up in this game. It's all I ever wanted to do since I can remember. I never thought about the money, you know, and, I, yeah. and once you, once you get to the big leagues and now you're making, 
you know, you're about to sign a four year contract. Well, maybe you think about the money a little bit, but that's, that's not the reason I slept on a couch in the minor leagues and I didn't care (laughs) and I didn't care. I just want to go play because I want to get out of a ball and I want to get to double A and I want to get to triple A. And, but when you put it in the, in the light that you just put it in, imagine being these guys, they don't know if there's a light at the end of the tunnel. They're not playing it. They're not playing it for the, for the money. No, no. Uh, they're playing it. To, they, they can barely. They're. You had to have. They had to love the game so much just to keep the league alive. And. But it would have been the, so the easy scru- for them to quit. Oh, the scrutiny that they had to go. I, I mean, I would even pretend that I could imagine what that's like. But but the abuse they took, like you said, I mean. You, you've got tons of cheering fans for the game, but I can't go get a burger. You kidding me? Yeah. You know, and, and but to keep to get up the next morning because you love this game so much and go that I can't control. But this I can control and to keep and, playing that that truly is the love of the game. Yeah. And Brent, then you throw in this other aspect because the fans who were coming to see them, their reputations preceded them. And so the fans didn't really care about any of the hardships that they had faced to get to where they were. They came expecting to see a good game. You, I want to see what you got. Now, we've heard all this stuff about you. I don't care if you couldn't get anything to eat. I don't care if you had a place to wash your uniform. I'm here to see you do your thing. And so somehow or another, they always had to find the wherewithal to go out and perform and perform at an exceptional level for those folks who had paid their hard-earned money to come watch them play. And it didn't matter what obstacles or hurdles they had to overcome to get there. Nobody cared. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. We were talking off camera before. Uh, my gramps broke into the to the big leagues with the Indians in, in uh, 1948. Yeah. And he played with Larry Doby, he played with Luke Easter, he played with Satchel Page. And Satchel Page, to most people, is, you know, especially guys my age or younger, I mean, it's almost like a fictional character. You hear the, <laughs> you know, you hear the stories. And you know what I still love, Bob, is, 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 is the terminology and, and how it was, how the verbiage was back then. And, and all right, to, to, in today's in today's game, I'd say that's not he doesn't throw fast. He doesn't throw hard. He's got a good heater. That's just how we speak. Uh, but the old time terminology is funny. You know, he could he, if you're talking about somebody that's got control, you know, he could hit the he could hit a gnat's ass if, yeah. if that was the target. But back in the day, I remember grandpa telling me this. He said, Satchel Page, Brett, he said, Satchel Page, you could get a bubblegum wrapper. Tape it yep. to the catcher's mitt, and he could hit it. He could hit it. And he used to tell, and he used to tell me it just like that, yeah. like that old school verbiage, yeah. which yeah. I thought was cool. Uh, yeah. and, and he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right, Brett. He didn't use home plate to warm up with. You know what he would use? He would use a stick of foil chewing gum wrapper. Man, this is the honest to God's truth. The catcher would sit the chewing gum wrapper on top of home plate. And wherever the catcher moved the chewing gum wrapper, Satchel right over the top of that chewing gum wrapper. And Brett, as Satchel would say, he'd work both corners of that chewing gum wrapper. You know, that's what made him so special. Now in his prime, they clocked his fastball at 105 miles per hour. 
but I remind my guests of what really made him so special. And as you well know, 105 is pretty doggone special. Yeah, 105 pretty special, but 105 with pinpoint control, virtually unhittable. And that's what he had. And, and you know, you, these stories, and you're right, he's one of those mythical, like, legends of this game. I never get tired of telling Satchel Page stories. And, of course, he, he had everything you needed to be a star because he had the longevity in this game. By his estimation, he pitched in over 2,600 games, recorded some 55 no-hitters, so he had the great stuff. Record, You know, God only knows how many strikeouts. But then he also had the charisma. He could sell it. He knew how to sell it. So when Satchel pitched, the entire towns would shut down to watch him do his thing. And, and Brett, he had names for his pitches. So he didn't have fastball, curveball, changeup, not Satchel. Satchel had what he called his midnight creeper. He had the two humper. He had the bat dodger. He had the hesitation pitch. He had the long tom, the short tom, the jump ball, the trouble ball, the raising <laughs> ball, the dipsy do. Uh, and Brett, he had a pitch famously that he called his B ball. You know why he called it the B ball? Because Satchel says it bees where I want it to be when I wanted to be there. <laughs> well, that is cool. He did. He had that it factor. And, he had it. He you had know what? But it, just thinking back, it's like, well, Larry Doby could flat out rake. This sucker yeah. could hit. Could. Uh, you talk about Luke Easter. Uh, Gramp, or, or not my grandpa, my father, uh, he was just a, he was probably two or three years old and he remembers Luke Easter. He said, Brett, yeah. I used to come to the clubhouse for some reason. He Easter took a liking to me and he'd always little Bobby's in the house, little Bobby's <laughs> in the house and, and he'd play with Luke Easter. And then we get into the satchel page thing. And, and you know what I was mentioning, it's like a fictional character. Now I just kind of walk around. Hey, you ever heard the, the, the legend of satchel? Page? Yeah. Gramps played with satchel. <laughs> like it's no big deal, but, but at the same time, it's pretty cool. Well, it is because, you know, when Satchel gets to Cleveland, 1948 is his rookie year. He is believed to be 42 years old. If you believe that he was born July 7, 1906, which I absolutely do not. Most who knew Satchel believe that he was at least 10 years older than what he claimed to be. So he gets to Cleveland in July of 1948. Brett, if you go back and look at the standings of that season, Cleveland is... They're behind in the pennant race. And the old man comes in and helps them win the pennant. Satchel goes six and one with a 2.4 ERA his rookie season, y'all, at age 42, which means he was likely closer to 52. Yeah. He never told his real age. And honestly, I don't believe he knew his real age. And I mean, he was amazing. Cleveland comes back. And, and and wins the pennant and then wins the World Series, led, of course, by Satchel Paige and Larry Doby. And many people don't know that name, Larry Doby, but they should. Larry Doby would integrate the American League literally just weeks after Jackie breaks the color barrier in the National League, and Larry Doby is the forgotten man. But that's just how we are in our society. 
we always remember the first guy. We rarely ever remember the second guy. And that was the plight of Larry Doby. Larry Doby never played a day in the minor leagues. He went straight from the Newark Eagles over to Cleveland. And, and like I said, would help them win the World Series. While meanwhile, Jackie Robinson, as I oftentimes say, Jackie Robinson was Neil Armstrong. Jackie Robinson was the first man to walk on the moon in the eyes of black folks when he broke the color barrier with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Well, Larry Doby was our Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, Buzz walked on the moon too, but nobody seems to remember that Buzz walked on the moon. And that really was the same thing to be said for, for Larry Doby and Luke Easter, who you mentioned, Big Luke. Big Luke had the unenviable task of taking the place of Josh Gibson with the Homestead Grays. Josh had gotten sick, had a brain tumor. Sadly, he dies at 35. And Josh is sick, and he's too sick to play baseball. And the Homestead Grays signed Big Luke Easter. Now, it's impossible to feel those gigantic shoes, but Luke Easter could swing that bat. And, and, and some of you may know that he called his home runs Easter eggs. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he hit a bunch of them, too. You know, he didn't get he didn't really get a fair shake in the majors. He put up some huge numbers in the minor leagues, but could never really ever break through in the majors. They just left him down there for so long. Uh, it was a shame. And of course, later on, Luke Easter was murdered in an armed robbery attempt where he was working in a bank and, and unfortunately met his untimely death uh, at the hands of an assailant who murdered him. Yeah, Larry Doby, you're right. He was the he was the first Negro Leagues player in the American League, correct? Mm -hmm. And he was he was right after Jackie. Yeah, he didn't. Well, we uh, Jackie. I'll tell you this though, uh, you know, I looked through his his numbers, and his peers and his teammates know who Larry Doby is. Oh, I'll, I'll I'll guarantee you that. Oh, absolutely, no doubt about it. Bob, big year in the game. Uh, the Negro Leagues are now recognized as major league. How significant, how, how significant is that? It, it was tremendously significant. It was a little about a year ago when Major League Baseball made the historic announcement that they were going to recognize the Negro Leagues for what I already knew them to be, a major league, and that they would roll in the statistical data from the Negro Leagues into the annals of Major League Baseball history. This was absolutely historic. It was significant. And for me, the Negro Leagues really didn't need validation, but certainly to have Major League Baseball acknowledge it in this way, the recognition, the acceptance, and to some degree, perhaps the atonement for the egregious decision to not recognize the Negro Leagues years ago when it was recognizing so many other uh, auxiliary leagues that really didn't have any impact on this game. And so for them to do that, years later, was a tremendous tip of the cap to what the Negro Leagues represented both on and off the field. We were all very excited. And I think also, Brett, it was part of why we saw Negro Leaguers back on the Hall of Fame ballot this year. Andrew Rube Foster. Yeah. Uh, I've heard you speak about him a lot. Um I'm just gonna give kind of give it to you. He he founded the Negro Leagues 1920. Yes. Lasted till 1960. Yes. 
Man, I, I hear a lot of story. I want to see which ones are true, which ones aren't true. I want to hear about coaching third base with a pipe, with giving a pipe. signals with it, giving signals. <laughs> you know, you mentioned you mentioned uh, you talked about Ruben, and you said how he expected his players to be, how they played the game. Yeah. And I think back in a time when the game, the the major league game, wasn't played particularly that way. No. Uh, and and as I mentioned at the top of the uh, top of the show, uh, not only do you think he's one of the most influential and important people in the history of baseball, maybe the most important. I just want you to speak to to Rube Foster and, and give us a snapshot of, of of him and his impact. He was an absolute genius, Brett. I think Rube Foster is the greatest baseball mind this sport has ever seen that virtually no one knows who he is, even though he is rightfully enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Rube Foster, y'all, would have gone in the Hall of Fame as a player because he had been a great pitcher in the early era of black baseball. As a matter of fact, he is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then, it was called a fadeaway, and Rube perfected this pitch, so much so that the great major league manager, John McGraw, allegedly snuck Rube Foster into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. Christy Matheson threw the pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Rube Foster. But Foster was best known as this visionary, this tremendous leader, So he would organize the Negro League. So he would have gone in the Hall of Fame as an executive. He would become president of the Negro Leagues. He owned and managed the Chicago American Giants. And you won't find a manager that was any more shrewder, craftier, and even, I think, astute as Rube was. And as I mentioned, Rube Foster would find his ball players bred at the turn of the 19th century. At the turn of the century, he would find them as much as $5 if you were tagged out standing up. You were supposed to slide. Rube would draw a circle down the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline. And if every one of his players couldn't drop a bunt inside that circle, he would find them. He was just adamant about the style of play that became signature Negro Leagues baseball. Fast, aggressive, daring. As we mentioned earlier, they would drop that bunt down. They still second. They still third. And man, if you weren't too smart, they still home. And Rube Foster, when he formed the Negro Leagues in 1920, Brent, thought that he would create a league that was so dynamic that he would force Major League Baseball's hand to integrate. So under Rube Foster's vision, you would have had complete integration years before we've actually seen it. And for those who are kind of imagining what that would have been like, think about the merger of the NFL and the AFL or the NBA and the old ABA. That was Rube Foster's vision in 1920, man. That's how far forward thinker he was, and he was the father of black baseball. And when Rube Foster dies, the Negro League suffered greatly after losing their, you know, 
renowned leader, although I'll be honest, there were some in the ranks that didn't like Rube. They thought he had too much power. Yeah, it, it's going to make for a classic film one day because it's the classic story of power, envy, greed, you name it, because despite the fact that the Negro Leagues were flourishing, there were some within the ranks of the Negro Leagues who could not stand Rube Foster because he ran the Negro Leagues like a tyrant. He handled every aspect of business operations, and some folks would just, they would just rub wrong by that, even though it was almost against their own self-interest because they were winning. Yeah, the Negro Leagues were winning, and the story has it that Rube is on league business in 1925 in Indianapolis. He's asleep in his hotel room, exposed to a gas leak. A passerby smells the gas, comes through, kick, kicks in, brings him out. When Rube comes out, he's unconscious. He's, when he comes to, likely has suffered brain damage. And so it left him where he was subject to having fits of violent outrage. And so his family had to institutionalize him, where three years later, he dies of a heart attack. Well, when Rube Foster dies, the fans of Chicago line the streets for three days to pay their respect to the beloved Rube Foster. But Brett, there's great belief that that gas leak wasn't accidental, that somebody tried to take old Rube out. So here we have one of the most brilliant minds in baseball history. He dies in an insane asylum. I tell people all the time, you can't make this stuff up. It's too good. <laughs> wow. Give me your inter what what was the barnstorming all about? Explain to the audience out there oh. that's not truly truly uh, up to up to speed on yeah. what bar barnstorming was. Well, I think Satchel enjoyed barnstorming far more than he did the league games. And so for those of you who may be hearing that term for the first time, in the case of baseball, they were taking baseball to towns and, and other parts of the globe that had not really seen professional baseball. So the Negro Leaguers were heralded barnstormers. They took professional baseball into Canada. They were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. A touring team of Negro Leaguers would go to Japan as early as 1927, Brett. That is years before Ruth and his All-Stars would visit Japan. And, and through barnstorming, as Satchel said, he was free. He could do pretty much what he wanted to. You know, the league games were so confining and restrictive and even more restrictive when he got to the major leagues. So they could make extra money by barnstorming. You know, so for instance, the Kansas City Monarchs and the St. Louis Stars might play in Kansas City and then they play their way all the way back to St. Louis, but they stop in these other little towns and make some more money either playing the local town teams or playing each other until they got back to St. Louis for a league game. And so barnstorming became very popular. And you had countless barnstorming games between Negro League teams or black teams and major league teams. And the record books bear out that the Negro League teams or the black all-star teams won the majority of those head-to-head matchups. Fascinating. It's it's so cool. Um, all these stories, they're just, they're, they're you know, I, I, I just, I, I'd, I'd like everybody to hear them, you know, especially that, <laughs> especially the, the, the true baseball fans that love this yeah, game as much, yeah. as much as I do. Um, if people could walk in 
and they and they meet you. They meet Bob Kendrick at the door, Kansas City, Missouri, <laughs> at the museum, and they said, "Bob, I only got time to see one thing at your museum today. What are you going to take Ooh. them to see?" Ooh, that's a tough one there, man. Because I tell you, we got some we got some amazing pieces here. I'd have to take them onto the field of legends, and, and I kind of described the field uh, when we were talking earlier about Buck not getting into the Hall of Fame. But you almost got to see it to believe it because we to understand how we set this up, this experience, when you walk into the Negro Leagues Museum, Brett, you essentially walk into an old ballpark. And the first thing that you see is the field. Of course, here is the field of legends with these 10 life-size bronze sculptures and they're cast in position as if they were playing a game. And, and again, they represent the first group of Negro Leaguers to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Buck O'Neill is on the outside looking in, managing this great all-star team. And so you can you peer through this old chicken wire backstop and you can see the field, but you can't get to it. And what our visitors discovered that chicken wire is actually symbolic of American segregation. During that era, if black fans were allowed in to watch a major league game, that is oftentimes how we were separated. So black fans would sit either down the left or right field lines would be separated from white fans who sat in the rest of the ballpark with a chicken wire barrier. So we use chicken wire to separate all of our visitors from the centerpiece of our exhibition. So as you're making your way through the museum, you can always see the field, but you can't get to it. And so the only way that you're allowed to take the field here, you have to literally earn that right. And you do so by learning their story. And Brett, by the time you've bared witness to everything that these athletes had to endure just to play baseball, the very last thing that happens here is now you can take the field. And in many respects, you're now deemed worthy to walk out on the field, as I like to say, with 10 of the baddest brothers to ever play this game. <laughs> and, and, and I guess they get it. They get it, Brett. I'll never forget when we had the grand opening of our permanent home here in 1997, my good friend, the wizard, Ozzie Smith, one of the greatest shortstops this game has ever seen. He was here for the grand opening. And when he walked out onto the field, he said it was one of the most eeriest feelings he had ever gotten because he could feel their spirits. And he understood that he had stood on the shoulders of these legendary athletes who, as Buck O'Neill would say, built the bridge across the chasm of prejudice that allowed Ozzie Smith to become the wizard, to pursue and play the game that he loved at the major league level. And that was not lost on him. And he was it was very emotional for him. He was literally moved to tears. You feel that when you walk out there. You know, it, they are so real that... I have very little doubt that once the dust settles and everybody goes home, you know they start throwing that ball around the horn. They have, You know they do. And, and, and it's a special, special, special display. Like I said, I think it's one of the most amazing displays in any museum anywhere in the world at first base, Buck Leonard at second base, John Henry Pop Lloyd, shortstop Judy Johnson, third base Ray Dandridge, left field Cool Papa Bell, center field the great Oscar Charleston, in right field Leon Day, catching of course is Josh Gibson, 
the batter on the diamond is the great Martin De Higo from Cuba, nicknamed him El Maestro, the master, because he could do it all. Played all nine positions, played all nine of them well. Brett, he is the only baseball player in the history of our sport to be enshrined into five different countries' baseball halls of fame. Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. And then, of course, on the mound is the old man, the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. So you can kind of get an impression when I talk about 10 of the baddest brothers to ever play. You can see why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that is cool. And, you know, I've I've only been to the Baseball Hall of Fame one time, but uh, I'm going to make my way out there. And, Bob, I'm not going to be able to have uh, – um, Oh, what I lost where I was. I'm gonna have Bob Kendrick oh, give yes, me exactly. give me give me that tour, but I, I oh, definitely I definitely want to check it out. It's uh, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Kansas City, Missouri, 18th and Vine. And uh, <laughs> Bob, this was educational. This was really cool. I, I, I it's just something that that a lot of people don't get to hear about a lot of the time, and it, it's really cool to hear these names and 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 to put. You know, I, I don't know. I just love listening. I love the nicknames, and it, it all starts out with probably the most famous nickname is is the Cool Papa Bill. But you rattled you rattled off a bunch of them, and and it, and it's cool. It just gives you a little look into our history and what it what it used to be like. No, and, uh, I, I, I I love it. Uh, I am so thrilled, Brett. Number one for the opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity to kind of talk about this history, and I hope though your audience will enjoy what we've talked about today. And maybe if their travels bring them to Kansas City, they'll come and experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And hopefully they'll want to learn more about this museum. And certainly you can visit our website at nlbm.com to do just that. But man, like I said, it never gets old for me. You know, I, I, I love the work that we do. We know the work that we're doing is very important. There are not many Negro League players still with us. They're like World War II vets. Many of them were World War II vets. And so what stood at risk was that this amazing piece of baseball and Americana was going to die when that last Negro League left the face of this earth. And we cannot allow that to happen. And that's why this museum is so important. Bob, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for, for coming on the Boone Podcast and what we do. Each and every time at the end of the Boone podcast, as we turn it over to the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, for a question from the fans. Dan. Gentlemen, Bob, this one comes from Jeff in Kansas City, and he wants to know, Bob, is there a holy grail item out there that you still want to get in that museum or something that's out there that you are on the search for? Well, there are some things. There are some unique pieces. They surface every now and then. And it's always challenging, man. I tell you the work, Jeff, that we've done in raising the profile of the museum and the interest in this history makes it so challenging now. You know, we're setting the market. We're setting the market to the point that we can't even compete to go get these things. So yes, <laughs> there is some stuff out there. I know there is, and, and they'll come up. We've been very fortunate over the last few years to acquire some really unique pieces, including the financial ledger of Rube Foster that documents every business transaction in the Negro Leagues from 1920 through 1925. 
And, uh, you know, to me, that was one of the holy grails. And we were able to secure that. But you can rest assured there are some other things out there. These uniforms and other three-dimensional items, they will now fetch six figures, man. It's It's just so difficult for us to compete to go get them. And hopefully, you know, doing a show like this, somebody may look in the basement and the attic and say, you know what? I got something here. Maybe the museum might want to have it. And I can tell you now, the answer is yes. We would want to have it. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Mailbag. All right, Boone. You know what time it is, don't you? Mail bag time, Dan. It's mailbag time. You damn skippy, it's mailbag time. But this one comes from Jennifer in Tucson, and she wants to know, Brett, you always talk about the stories of you being in the locker room with your dad growing up and being a part of his life in the baseball game. Did you get to do that with your kids, too? Um, My my daughter got to be around a little bit. She was running around the clubhouse a little bit, but you know, she's a, she's a girl. She's really not allowed in there. Uh, Jakey. Yeah. Jakey for, for uh, five or six years, you know, in his early childhood, he, he got to, Hey, I'd bring him to the ballpark whenever I could. He'd come out in the field with me playing some father son games. So yeah, they, they briefly had uh, they were exposed to that. And, and it's pretty cool. My, my circumstances were a little bit different. You know, my dad played until he was 42 years old and, and, uh, had me when he was 20 years old. So I, I, my entire life, my dad was still in the big leagues. My dad was in the big leagues when I was in the minor leagues. So I, I had a little bit more of a spoiled childhood hanging around the ballpark, but yeah, I, I suggest that to any, any current player, uh, that has the opportunity to expose uh, their kids uh, it's such a special time and, and a man, I had such a cool childhood. You can't quite do the things we did uh, back when I was a kid because of because of uh, insurance situation. I mean, if you get hurt nowadays, but uh, man, I definitely I, I tell all big leaders, if you got kids, you can get them in the ballpark, expose them as much as you can, because the, the memories for me are 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 so cool. And I have such fond memories of my childhood. All right, well, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer of the podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boone Podcast is Liz Landry. Please do us the favor. While you're listening, share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to this show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, Thanks for listening. Remember, if you have a question, tweet the boon at the boon29. You can find me on social media at base on air, B A S S on air. Send all your questions those ways, and we will get them on the podcast. Thanks for listening, Brett. Flip that bat. Let's roll. Let's do it. <laughs>